Good morning, Cross Point. How are you? I'll grant you, it's hot. You know me. I grew up in the high desert of Mexico, so I've teased you for years that it's not really hot here. I think this qualifies. Thank you for coming out in uh, muggy weather. But you're comfortable, right? We can do this. We're tough. Aren't we tough? We're committed. Aren't we committed? We are indeed. Uh, I'd like you to consider something I heard from a pastor this week. Really stuck with me. It's just a sentence, but he said that his concern is if we miss too much church, we won't miss church. And I think that's true. I'm especially concerned for younger people and for children who didn't have a lifetime habit of gathering with God's people. What we're doing here isn't really optional. It's not incidental. The word church literally means congregation. It's a called out assembly. We're living in extraordinarily unusual times in the middle of a global pandemic. But the call to gather, to draw not only close to God, but close to each other, that's essential and biblical. So if you have friends in this church, don't let the pandemic get you out of the habit of reaching out to them, of staying in touch with them. They need you more than ever. If you're new to this church and you still don't have friends in this church, we want to change that. As the church grows, it also needs to get smaller. It's absolutely essential that every single one of you have at least a handful of people who know you, who love you, who know your story, who will miss you when you're gone, who will know when you're struggling, who can celebrate great things with you when God blesses you in a special way. As a pastor, I'm absolutely committed to being sort of a concierge and a connector and making sure that all of you feel like this is family. We can't devolve church in the 21st century into a Netflix episode or a TED Talk where you enjoy some biblical content and then go on with your life thinking only of God and thinking of no other Christians and no other people that you can draw close to. So make that a matter of prayer. If you're watching at home and you actually could come, we'd love to see you back again in person. For those of you who simply cannot come, we're going to continue streaming but understand, that's really just, that's an extremity. That's a ministry that we're extending in a difficult and unusual time. Let's draw close to the Lord, and let, let's draw close to each other. Now, let me pray with you before we open our Bibles together. Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace to me this morning. You've blessed and helped me this morning. You've encouraged me, Lord, through hearing my brothers and sisters sing. I know that you were pleased. I thank you, Lord, for the musicians that were on this stage, particularly the Contreras family. Lord, what a blessing to see a son, two sons and a father serve together. Thank you for the small army that it takes to set this outdoor church up week by week. Thank you for all who are quietly laboring to represent your love to people. Help me now as I talk about your love, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, friends, if you will please open your Bibles, and hopefully you also have a bulletin. If you'll excuse me one moment while I get the hardware out. We've come up with all kinds of technology to make sure the pages don't blow in the breeze. Is that okay for everybody? Okay, all my signals are off. This is strange. There's people watching live uh, on camera. You're all spread out. So if I seem awkward, 
that's normal. If I seem extra awkward, that's not. So uh, pray for me that I'll figure it out as we go along. Last week, I began to share with you a doctrinal reflection, a slightly deeper thought on a very simple biblical idea, which is this. God is love. That's what 1 John 4, 8 says. That single sentence that God is love, when God describes himself in his word, he says that he is love is simply the greatest fact in the universe. It didn't have to be that way. God could have been something other than love. God could have been cruel, I suppose. Many of the religions of the world pay homage to a false God, to a God who is not there, who is actually cruel, tyrannical, bloodthirsty, unloving, unmerciful, unfeeling, unkind. When it comes time for God to explain himself in his word, once you see it, you see it from cover to cover, from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation, you see a continuous expression that the God who is actually there, the God who exists, is love. In fact, the big idea last week, and this week is all application of that simple idea, the big idea that changed my life in the last two weeks is this. Because God is love, he never has to be provoked to love. Think about that for a moment. Every human being on earth needs reasons to love someone else. You have to be persuaded. When you meet a stranger, your natural inclination, what flows naturally out of you for them, is not sacrificial love. Isn't that true? You see somebody walking by on the street, do, is your immediate thought saying, how may I serve and sacrifice myself for this person? Does that come naturally to you? No, you need reasons. They need to be family. They need to prove themselves friends. All of us in the way we love, until we meet Jesus and he changes our life, we all need reasons to love. God does not. He is love. And that also means that God can only be provoked to anger. God is holy and just and righteous, and because God is holy and just, He can be provoked to anger, but if, humanly speaking, it's not His natural setting, and it won't go on forever. If you read the end of the book, if you read Revelation, what will you will not find in the new heaven and the new earth is wrath. There will be no anger in the new heaven and the new earth, in the new creation God will never again express anger on the new heaven and the new earth because his justice will have been satisfied and he will be, so to speak, free to only do and only express what he is most naturally, which is love. And if you understand that and if you believe that, it changes you in some fundamental ways. And I want to give you four very specific applications of how truly believing that God is love can and should change you. And like all spiritual truth, these things may be easy to understand and to cognitively, intellectually accept, and it takes a lifetime to walk them out. It takes, as someone said, a long obedience in the same direction to actually put into practice the idea that God is love and adjust my attitudes and my behaviors in light of that fact. Here's the first. When we truly believe and we act on the idea that God is love, it changes us toward Him 
and it changes us toward others. If you meet a Christian who truly in his heart and with his hands and feet believes that God is love, you will see a person who is continually acting in these ways, first toward God and then toward others. The first thing it does toward God is if we understand and believe that God is love, it heightens our horror and hatred of sin. If you believe that God is love, that life-changing fact, that universe-defining fact will make you be horrified by your sin and hate it. Now, that seems counterintuitive because we've adopted some lazy thinking in the 21st century that is, if there is love, there is no room for hate. It doesn't seem intuitive. It doesn't seem obvious that if you love you also hate. But look how the Bible puts these two things side by side. Romans 12, verse 9. If you have your bulletin, in fact, I'd love for you to read aloud with me. Romans 12, verse 9. Paul wrote this. Read it right off the bulletin, please. It says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Let love be genuine. What's the very next word? Abhor. You use that word often in uh, your everyday life? No, you kind of save that one. That one's kind of special. What is, what is it to abhor something? It means to have a complete contempt, a thoroughgoing hatred for it. Now, how is it possible that, put, that Paul puts love and abhorrence or love and hatred side by side? How can he command the two things at once? How are Christians to move through this world? They are to move through this world with genuine love but hatred for some things. What are we to abhor or hate? What is what? Evil. And that, if you think about it a little bit more deeply, our lazy thinking kind of collapses and it becomes obvious. Because I love people, I hate cancer. Hate it. It's cost so many people I care about so much, including their lives. That's the sort of thing that Paul is getting to here. If you genuinely love anyone, you'll have, along with a great love for them, a whole new set of things that you hate. What will the things that be that you hate, the things that threaten them, the things that would harm them, the things that would destroy them? That's why Paul said, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, in all of that, hold fast to what is good. You're moving your way lovingly through a world that desperately needs love, but if you really love, you will also, along with your love, and as an expression of love, you will hate what is evil. And this has everything to do with God, because if God is love, and I believe that the God who is love loves me, when I discover in my heart that there is still rebellion toward God, there is still indifference toward God, there is still laziness and contempt toward God, the discovery of that which is called sin, which is defiance to God, which is failing to meet His standard, which is failing to treat Him with reverence and honor and the worship that He deserves, when I discover that I still sin and my natural, apart from Christ, inclination 
is still to follow my way and disregard and ignore his, that will make me hate sin. Love and hatred are not separate. If you genuinely love God and are loved by God, you should have an ever-growing horror of sin. You should think to yourself on a regular basis, if God is as good as I know Him to be in His Word, and if He can bless me in all of these ways, how could I possibly think and act the way that I do? Have you ever had that experience? Let me tell you a seminary story. Dr. Bob Sosi was the granddaddy of them all at Talbot School of Theology. His, he had risen so far and taught so many people so well for so long, his official title was the Distinguished Professor. Okay? Capital D, part of the title. You've got to be a big deal for a university to hang distinguished in front of your, in front of your name. And he asked us a question. He said, how many of you, in a theology class, he said, how many of you ever doubt that you are truly saved and you really love God? Well, we're all seminarians. We know the right answer. Everybody kept their hand down because we're young and insecure and filled with pride. And he said, that's funny because I, I wonder about myself all the time. When I reflect on how great God is and how much He loves me, the things that sometimes come out of my heart and out of my mouth shock me. And it makes me fearful that if I can still act this way, perhaps I don't know Him at all. He went on to say and explain to us how He recovers with the truth of the gospel because it's never been about our behavior we're not saved because we're so good. We're saved because Jesus is good. But what Dr. Sosi was talking about was a horror for sin in his old age with his long walk with Jesus, with character that was so evidently Christian that if you ever sat down with him, it felt like meeting the 13th apostle. You thought to yourself, this is what it's like to really know Christ and to be made like Christ and still even in his advanced age, with character that is clearly touched by God and touched by grace and genuinely holy, he still had the sense of horror and hatred for the sin he was still capable of. And if you don't, that's evidence that maybe you really actually don't know the Lord at all. Because if God is love and God is so great we should be horrified and we should hate our sin. Second thing, again, this is doctrine. This is not exposition of a biblical text. I'm just taking you deeper and trying to make specific applications of the idea so that you can walk for the rest of your life in a remembrance of what it means that God not only loves you, but that God is love. Second thought, if we understand that God is love, that will motivate heartfelt obedience. If you understand that not only the actions, but the very nature and character of God is love and is to love you specifically, when you rest in the fact and you believe the fact that you were loved this way, it makes you want to obey Him from the heart. Here's how Jesus explained it. Read again with me, John 14, verse 15. The Bible says, words of Jesus, read with me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You want to have a memory verse by heart before you go home? This one's easy. 
Jesus said, shortly before dying, by the way, we're in John 14. He's on his way to the cross. He has washed his disciples' feet in John 13. He's going to give them long and extended deep teaching before he's falsely arrested, accused of crimes and evil he never committed, and condemned to die for sin. Because sin is so awful and so hateful that the only thing that could remove it was the death of Jesus on the cross so that he could face the righteousness of God so that you wouldn't have to. And as he sums up the years of life and ministry that he has poured into them, he reminds him of what he has promised them and all that he has commanded him. He crystallizes it with this simple idea. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And that verse alone snapped me out of drifting away from God when I was in my late teenage years. Because I'm a ministry kid, and ministry kids learn to fake it. We have no choice because they drag us to church at least three times a week. And if you act like the Philistine you really are, it just doesn't go very well in life. So I was faking it. I had all the Christian externals, and I still trusted Jesus, and I still loved Jesus, but it had been some months, maybe a year or more, since I really, truly had walked with Him in an internal way. And this verse right here, if you love me, you will keep me command in my commandments. God in His grace literally woke me out of a deep sleep with that thought on my heart, and it changed my life. Because it's not duty, it's not obligation, it's not a fear of consequences. The best motivation to obey the God who loves you is that you love Him in return. The measure of, according to Jesus, for obedience is love. Here's the natural development of a relationship with God. This isn't a perfect line. You can move back and forth on this, on various uh, parts of your relationship with God, but here's how it looks. A person who is saved by God and placed in the family of God in the beginning, not always because people are different, your mileage may vary, but a simple childlike faith often begins obeying God because there is a fear of consequences. And then you mature and you start doing things from obligation or duty. And it's not so longer fear of consequences anymore. Now you simply want to do what you're told to do because you understand it's right and you feel duty-bound, you feel obligated to obey. And the final stage, the purpose for this two-part series reflecting on the love of God is to invite all of you, each of you, in person and online to consciously step into obeying God because you love Him, to take up Jesus' instructions that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Let's bring that down into where we live. It might make more sense. I saw my wife for the second time on the Dairy Queen on PCH and knew she was the one. She happened to be sitting with her boyfriend at the time, but I knew that that was unimportant and that clearly that would not continue, and it didn't. We went to Bible college together, all three of us. She dumped him. I waited a respectful 24 hours and asked her out. Out of respect, I, I felt he owe, I owed him at least that much. We were in the same dorm together. Uh, if we weren't, I might have waited 12. So, 
So I've been in a loving relationship with my wife now, counting dating and marriage for over 30 years. After all this time, if I gave her a gift or a card on our anniversary and she thanked me, if I said, well, you're welcome, I was afraid if I didn't, you would be angry. How would that go over? What if the next year I got a little better and I said, here's a card and a gift, thank you. Oh, don't thank me, it's my duty. I made a promise 27 years ago, and I am here to keep that promise. I am duty and honor bound to treat you with special kindness on this day where we remember the promises we made so long ago. How would that go over? What would the problem be? She wouldn't feel loved. I would have done the right thing for an inferior reason. If the third year I finally break through and have a brain in my head, same card, same gift, thank you so much. You're welcome, baby. It's the least I can do. I love you. How's that going to go over? Now we're talking. That's the way it is with God. Some Christians who know they are loved by God never progressed past in their obedience. They never move past the idea that if I don't do this, God will strike me. Please remember, God loves you. You can provoke Him to anger, but even then, He is long-suffering and patient and merciful. It takes a great deal to provoke the God who is love to finally step in and act with discipline, to act with righteousness and justice, because His inclination, His the deepest desire, if I can speak of God in a human way to help us understand, His deepest desire that flows from His very character is to love people. So these are very simple attitudinal adjustments that can actually reframe not only what you do in your Christian life, but how you feel about it, if you can move from a fear of consequences, past obligation and duty, and walk more constantly in an obedience to God because you love Him, because you've taken Jesus seriously when Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Are you going to stay in a love motivation all the time? No. Because you're human, you're frail, you're forgetful, you're fearful. Anybody who's been in a long marriage or a long friendship or who has raised children knows that in a real, earthly, frail relationship, you do some things sometimes because you're just afraid of the consequences, and that's why you went to work. You don't love it, you're just afraid you're going to get fired. Other times you take care of your kids. Yes, you do love them, but today really it's about gritting your teeth and holding to your obligations. But where you want to live, where you want to continually incline your heart is to do what Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You obey him because you love him. Secondly, these are impacts that the love of God has with us vertically but it also changes us toward others. Someone who rests and trusts in the love of God, who is walking through this world with all of his stumbles, with all of his failures and fears, but is continually reminding himself that he will be better and he will act better because God loves him, the 
first thing, one of the first things it does if you genuinely love God is this. If you love God and you know that God loves you, it compels you to tell the world about this God who loves you. You feel motivated. You feel driven. You feel controlled by His love to tell others about Him because He's so good. If you love something, the most natural thing to do is to tell somebody. My wife and I took a couple days off a couple weeks ago. We were down in Escondido. We found tacos so amazing that at the drive-thru, they greeted me in Spanish. They couldn't see me. They just thought it was the most natural thing to talk to everybody in Spanish, and I thought, I have come to the right place. They're not even trying to speak English. They're talking to me in Spanish. This is going to be good, and so it was. Okay? Absolutely amazing. Shortly after that, a good friend texted me and said, we're in San Diego for a little while, and I said, you got to try this place. If you have time, it's a little bit of a detour, but you got to go to this taco place. It's amazing. Now, what in the world? I'm not on commission. They didn't promise me anything. They fed me. We had a little commercial exchange where they gave me food and I gave them money. Why the extra motivation to tell somebody who wasn't even asking where the good stuff was? Love. Love for tacos in this case, a very natural love, if you ask me. And that's the way it is. We celebrated a wedding yesterday. Two kids in our church that have dated, I think, for 10 years, got married. They've known they were for each other from the time I think they were probably, goodness, I'd have to do the math, late elementary school probably. They got married. I sat at the table with some old and dear friends, and also some strangers. Do you know what the strangers talked about the whole time we were there? Our kids. Why do people who have only met in a social setting almost always fall into a conversation about their children if they happen to have them? Because they love them. They don't talk about their jobs so much. They trade titles or occupations, if there's any commonality, they might talk about that for a little while. But what people really love to talk about are the things that they love. Listen to Paul explain it to the Corinthians. This isn't the whole passage. I've edited this so that you can follow the high points. Paul is explaining to the Corinthians, for the love of Christ controls us. Let that sink in for just a second. The fact that Jesus loves us is what controls us. The NIV translate, the love of Christ compels us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. In other words, Jesus died for all of us. Therefore, all have died. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross, from God's point of view, our old life in sin was over. And He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. In other words, Jesus died for you so that you would live for Him. Moving down a little bit in the passage. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's the miracle of the cross. If you're not yet a Christian, maybe if you're watching online and checking Christianity out, I'm not preaching moralism and better behavior. I'm preaching the substitution of Christ's life for yours. Jesus trades His life and His righteousness for your sin on the cross. 
And because of that, Paul says, because the love of Christ controls us, because, verse 17, He has made us whole new people, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake He made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul is saying the love that Christ has for us is now driving us forward. It's compelling us into action. It's controlling our lives. And what are we doing? Verse 20, we're imploring you on His behalf, be reconciled to God. Why did Paul suffer all that he did? He just told you in verse 14, it is the love of Christ that controls him. What is it about the Christian life that is difficult for you? For Christians, there's two things. One, obligation from within the family, and another, with the world. The obligation within the family that most Christians struggle with for most of their lives is giving. They find reasons to put that off. They may also struggle in the same way with serving. How do you move from being tight-fisted to being a generous giver? How do you move from being self-centered to being a servant? Here's the answer. It's love. When you have a love for Christ, you will obey Him in that area. What's the obligation toward the world? Those are internal. This is external. The thing that most Christians are most fearful, nervous about is to open their mouths and share the gospel, to tell other people of their faith in Christ, of how Christ died on the cross, made them a new creation, and how He can do the same for the person they're speaking to. How do you fight through that fear? There's only one thing that melts that fear, and that is a great love for God. Take you back to the reception at the wedding yesterday. I spoke of my two sons naturally at more length probably than strangers ever wanted to hear. I kept checking myself and saying, they don't care, they don't care, pull back, pull back. They can't possibly care to know this much. They'll never meet my kids. This is a one-time thing. It just kept coming out of me. Why? Because I love those boys. If sharing your faith is difficult for you, in addition to the very practical problem that you don't know how, which can easily be remedied, by the way, the real problem is not technique, it's love. If you are so loved by God and you love Him with ever greater strength day by day, year by year, you won't be able to stop talking about Him because the love of Christ compels us to tell the world about the God who loves us. And finally, the love of God does a final thing in our relationship toward others. It frees us to serve other people, even those who were undeserving. If you know that God is love and God loves you this way, you are then not only compelled but liberated to serve others as He first served you. Romans 12.10, notice that verse follows the first verse we read. 
Romans 12, 9 says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. The very next verse says, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. What kind of congregation should this be? What should be said of this church that we are a people who are unrelated by blood on this earth, but we're related by the blood of Jesus? That we're family. And the things that separate us, such as race, gender, and political views, the things that tear America apart at various times in her history, are absolutely unimportant in comparison to the love that has brought us together. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. That's quite a statement. What if for the rest of the week with the circle of people that you fellowship with in this church, you tried for the rest of the week to outlove and out-honor them, and everybody did the same thing? When I was in Bible college, I used to joke with a friend who was very service-oriented, you will not out-humble me. I will be more humble than you are today. And by the way, if you ever notice that you're being humble, bad news, okay? You're actually the proudest person in the room at that moment. Paul says if there is genuine love, verse 9, that's going to show up in brotherly affection within the family, and you will be committed to outdoing the other person in honoring and serving them. That's within the church. Look at the level in which Jesus showed love, John 13. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world, that means that Jesus in this scene knows he's on his way to the cross. The cross did not surprise Christ. He willingly went to it. He actually knew the very moment it was his time to die, and he consciously, deliberately, steadfastly headed toward the executioner. Now we're at that time. It is the scene of the Last Supper, and here's what's going on in the heart and mind of Jesus. Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father having loved his own who were in the world, he what? He loved them to the end. All the time Jesus was with his disciples, he was doing one thing. He was loving them. He was loving Peter when he made him an apostle and assured him that Peter would be foundational to the building of Christ's church. And he was also loving Peter when he famously told him, get behind me, Satan. Both of those actions, as different as they were, were love for Peter. They were love for John and for all the apostles. He loved them all the way through, even in the moment when he knows he's going to die. Now they're at the Last Supper. There's been some social awkwardness because they're in a borrowed room and there is no servant there to wash everybody's feet on this high and holy occasion. There is a basin and a bowl and a towel, but there is no servant provided. And 12 men walked past the basin and the bowl and made a conscious decision. Uh-oh, no servant to wash our feet at the Passover supper. Who's going to wash our feet? And 12 men made the same decision. Not me. And Jesus knows it. 
during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, and Jesus knows that's going on as well because he's going to tell Judas to get it over with and to quickly do what's in his heart. So I just want you to see the scene. You've got 12 self-involved, selfish men who, according to the gospel, are going to argue among themselves about how it's going to work out for them in the kingdom. Once Jesus has died, how are they going to stack up? What's the org chart going to look like when they take their respective places? Everybody at the Last Supper is thinking of themselves. Only one person is thinking of others, and it's Jesus. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. In other words, he dressed himself as a slave, as a servant. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So you have the Son of God on his knees, washing the bare feet of those who called him master and teacher, including the feet of the traitor who is going to leave, according to John, into a dark night on the clean feet that Jesus washed for him to betray him. How could Christ love in this way? Because he loved his disciples all the way through, all the way to the end, and it says, here is the reason. Verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. In other words, Jesus was utterly secure in the Father's love. He knew exactly who he was. His identity was crystal clear to him. And because he knew that, he could serve anybody and everybody, including the man who would betray him. And you, as a disciple of Jesus, if you know that in Christ you've been given the love of God, You've been given your own name in his family. You have been welcomed into his kingdom. And whatever your old life was, it died with Christ on the cross. And when he rose, he made you a new creation and gave you a new life and a new purpose so that you would no longer live for yourself, but live for him. If you know all that and you have all that and that heaven is your home, and however tight and difficult your financial situation is on this earth, the literal wealth of heaven awaits you because God is that loving and is that good. That frees you to serve anyone and everyone right here. And when you love undeserving people without conditions because you love them, because you love the God who made them, and you want them to know how good He is, so you cannot help but speak of God and to serve people in God's name, that has a revolutionary impact on the world. And the real struggle of today's church is whether we will love as God first loved us, without conditions, with the sacrifice to seek the good of the other rather than waiting for reasons. All I've tried to tell you is simply this, believing that God loves us changes everything about us. It makes you hate the sin that took Jesus to the cross when you still find it in your heart and in your actions. 
It continually reminds you that the love and the, obedient, the obedience you have for God is not primarily out of fear or duty. It is out of love. As you love Him more and more, you naturally speak of Him, and you find within yourself the capacity to serve others the way He first served you. My invitation to you simply is not to change your behavior. That'll come. Ask God to give you the grace to love Him more. Meet with Him and read His Word, not because it's an obligation or a routine, but because you want to hear from your Father. Speak to Him with humble confession, with genuine thanksgiving, and with humble requests in the confidence that He loves you and He wants to hear from you. Then get up, having done that in the morning, go out there knowing that He loves you and He literally died to save you. If you know that you're loved like that, you'll be free to love others as well. It'll change everything about you. Let's pray. Father, give us one minute of clarity, I pray, by your grace. Make this minute count, Lord, as people reflect on their actual relationship with you. Two questions. You can just keep that prayerful attitude for a moment. Do you really know him? Do you really love him? That's the first and the most vital question. Not have you signed a creed, not have you been baptized, not have you done certain Christian things, but have you ever really turned from your sin and entrusted yourself to the God who loves, the God who is love? That's what matters. If you haven't, my invitation to you is that you would. But as two people did last week, you would place your faith personally in Jesus, and that you'd let us know via email or through that text number, 714-868-7258. If you're here in person, that you'd talk to me after the service. And if you know it, are you secure in this love? Is this love for, that God has for you more and more real to you? Are you growing in your love for Him? Wherever you're struggling to trust and obey Him, if you caught nothing else today, please understand that. Wherever your obedience is struggling, it's not a matter of knowledge. It's only a matter of love. So ask Him to love you in some, rather ask Him to help you love Him as He first loved you, to love that you may love others because He loves you. And see what happens. Father, may we make the application when we bring this into our homes, our marriages, our friendships, our jobs. May we truly, Lord, from the heart, love you and love others because you loved us. I pray in Jesus' name. And Crosspoint said, amen.